how's it going, everyone? Welcome back to the Awaken Project podcast. Today, it's just going to be Stephen, and this is actually just a little intro to the real recording of the episode. I'm doing two parts here uh, to give you some context as to what exactly today's episode is going to be. I'm sitting down with none other than Bill Yonker, Pastor Reverend Bill Yonker from East Dundee, Illinois. He's going to be talking to us today about the power of the story. He has four great stories, and they get better and better and better as he goes on throughout the episode. So you definitely want to make sure you listen to the entire episode here. To give you a little bit of context of what exactly is going on once the episode starts, uh, we will be in the back seat of his car, actually driving from Alexandria, Minnesota, to Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport. Him and his wife, Joanne, gave me a ride down to MSP. To I got on a flight from MSP to Chicago, uh, and that was to eventually actually drive out to Ohio to worship lead a VBS and then come back to Chicago for a visa appointment for graduate school in Spain. Whoop-de-doo. Uh, but one thing else that I need to mention, Bill Yonker's ideal three-course meal, this is a priority here, people. His starter is antipasto. Main course is spaghetti and meatballs, and for dessert, a lovely tiramisu. So, if you ever wondered what to get Bill for dinner, I suggest you start somewhere in that neighborhood. And so without further ado, let us begin today's episode. It is seriously, it is a fantastic conversation, some great stories. You want to make sure you listen to this whole thing through. Thanks. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are, Awaken Project Podcast family. Hey, super excited for today's episode. Uh, if you hear a little bit of rain, if you hear a highway, well, that's because we're recording on the road today. I am joined by none other than Reverend Billy Yonker, and I am in uh, him and his wife Joanne's car. We're driving down to MSP Airport right now. They're going to drop me off for a flight later today, and we're recording as driving down to the airport. So, as I said, Billy Yonker, for those that you may not know him, I will let him introduce himself right now. Bill. Hi, everybody. Uh, Bill Yonker here. I'm a pastor just outside Chicago. Um, and uh, married to a fabulous lady who's driving the car right now, Joanne. Also have uh, three children. One of them married to a fabulous young man named Tyler. My daughter Rebecca's married to him. And they gave me my first grandchild. Um, and I get to talk to you about stories today. Yeah, Bill is a world-renowned storyteller. That's what he's probably known best for. And I asked him uh, if he'd be on the podcast just to share a couple stories with us today that will achieve three things I will outline right now. So first one, he's going to tell us a story that just produces a great laugh. He's going to tell us something that's all going to make you chuckle. And if some of you that are regulars on the Bill Yonker train, uh, you probably you might have heard this one before. I don't know what he's going to tell, so this is a surprise for me too. Uh, second one is going to be a story that produces great questions or thoughts. And the third one is going to be a story that points best to Jesus. So Without further ado, we will get this show on the road. Bill, your story that always seems to produce a great laugh. Take it away. <laughs> so there's a, a dad that needed to put his son to bed. Mom was out with her friends, and it was dad's job. And he knew the routine. He, he uh, took the little boy upstairs and uh, changed clothes, brushed his teeth, washed him up, put him in bed, read a couple stories, said prayers, gave 65,000 hugs and kisses, and then said, okay, son, time to go to sleep. Please, go good night. And the little boy uh, said, Dad, before you go, 
can you get me a drink of water? And the dad said, no, I can't. Because if I give you a drink of water, then you're going to have to go to the bathroom again. Then we're going to have to start the whole routine. It's time for you to go to sleep. And the fact was, the dad just was looking forward to be being done with the day, to sit in the peace and quiet, read his newspaper in his recliner chair, kind of at the foot of the stairs. He'd be able to hear his son if his son needed anything, but was just looking for that peace and quiet. And the little boy said, but dad, I'm so thirsty. Will you please get me a drink? And the dad said, no. Um, I said, no, it's time for you to go to sleep. But, Dad, I'm so thirsty. Son, you're not that thirsty. You just had a drink. We're not going to do this all again. I said, no. But, Dad, I just want one drink. Will you get me one drink? No. Now, son, I'm starting to get a little irritated. I don't want to get irritated at you tonight. I just want you to go to sleep. But, Dad, no. I'm turning the light off. I'm leaving. No means no. As the dad's walking down the stairs, the little boy says, Dad, I'm so thirsty. Please get me a drink. And the dad said, No. I said, No. Now enough. Please, I'm going to get angry. And it was quiet for about 20 seconds. The dad just sat down, grabbed the newspaper. And the boy said, But Dad, please get me a drink. I need a drink of water. And the dad, his temper was at its, 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 its wit's end. And he said, Son, that's it. No more. I said, No. No means no. I'm not going to say it again. If I have to say it again, I'm going to come up there and I'm going to give you a spanking. And it went totally silent for about 30 seconds. And then the little boy yelled out, Dad, when you come up to give me a spanking, will you bring me a drink of water? (laughs) There you go. Love it, love it, love it. All right. Hopefully you're chucking along with this right now. And hopefully that kid got a glass of water. All right. Second story. This is the one that's going to produce great thoughts or great questions. Take it away. So I met a young man by the name of Jared. And uh, when I first met him, uh, um, he, he looked to me exactly like Scooby-Doo from the cartoon character. Uh, or, or he looked like Shaggy from the cartoon character Scooby-Doo. And a great young man, but he just truly looked like Shaggy. And um, he was to pick me up from Sioux Falls, South Dakota Airport and drive me to a camp where we were going to spend the week together and and I was going to do some teaching. And so um, after I grabbed my bags and he introduced himself, we started walking out to the parking lot and he said, the van's outside. And if you know your Scooby-Doo, you know that there was the magical mystery machine. And I was teasing him about that. But we we got up to this um, uh, old white utility van and he slid open the side door and there was a bunch of greasy rods on the bed of the floor and took my suitcases and kind of launched them in there and he said, you ride up front with me. And I thought, well, good. He must know how sophisticated I am. Well, we got to the uh, passenger door, and he opened it. And I looked inside, and there was no seat. And he goes, oh, dude, sorry, forgot to tell you. There's no seat in here. You have to ride on the floor. So I climbed in the van and sat on the floor and cross-legged. And uh, kind of an interesting look where I'd be staring at the glove compartment for a couple of hours. And so I, I, I looked up at him, and he's sitting up in the, the driver's seat. and. Um, I said, uh, Jared, tell me about yourself. And uh, tell me this incredible story of, of how he's part of an intentional evangelism um, outreach program and how they go into uh, uh, cities and go into alternative-type neighborhoods and just tell people about the love of Jesus. That's their goal is just to love them up and tell them about the love of Jesus. And he told me this incredible story, and uh, I won't tell you the whole story now, but the whole story basically was that he was able to witness to a young man um, who um, was leading an alternative lifestyle, uh, terribly unhealthy for himself, 
and for other people and um, uh, actually was was an illegal lifestyle and um, anyway my friend Jared was able to talk with this young man his name was Chris and get Chris to the point of considering going home and uh, uh, learning more about Jesus and and um, uh, Jared was phenomenal in telling the story of very compassionate for this young man and uh, then as Jared wrapped up his story while I'm riding in the, the sitting cross-legged on the floor of the van um, he said I just heard from this young man and he told me that he is going to go back home to Indiana and and he wanted to hear more about Jesus and Jared was able to pray with this young man when he'd met him and uh, it was a phenomenal story and as as he's telling me the story I started to, to, to weep a little bit and uh, then uh, I was trying not to, to be all mushy and I'm looking up at Jared I see he's got all these these chains around his neck and I first noticed that he no longer looked like a cartoon character to me he started looking more like uh, a picture of a, a person I, I picture walking down the shores of Galilee with Jesus one of the apostles and I I was thinking he was more like an apostle than um, a cartoon character anyway um, I noticed he had all these chains and necklaces and leather straps around his neck. He even had a dog collar with spikes coming out of it. And <clears throat> I just uh, he, he was done with his story, and it, uh, I was trying not to show that I was crying. And so I, I just kind of said, hey, I, I noticed you got a lot of stuff around your neck. And uh, he said, yeah, I noticed you don't got any. Do you need any of mine? I said, no, 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 I, it, it looks good on you. You keep it. And uh, I said, but I am curious about one. And he said, the dog collar? I said, no, strangely, that, that makes sense to me. I kind of get that. I said, but the one that makes most surprising is I, I notice you have a pink plastic spoon on a chain around your neck. And he grabbed it at that moment as he's driving down the road. And he, and he said, yeah, that's my favorite. I'm glad you noticed it. He said, this is my favorite. And I said, well, it's your favorite. And I said, why? He said, well, it reminds me what I am. And I said, you're a spoon? And it was literally a, a, a tester spoon from Baskin Robbins where they give you a little taste test of ice cream. And he'd, he'd put a hole at the end of the <coughs> handle part of the spoon and uh, had a chain running through it. And uh, he said, it reminds me what I am. And I said, you're a spoon? And he said, no, well, yeah, I am a spoon. He said, here's how I see it. You know, there's so many people in the church today that are knives and forks. Knives are for cutting and forks are for stabbing, but spoons are for serving. Mm. We don't need any more people that'll slice and dice us with knives. We don't mm. need any more people that'll stab us with their indifference or their hatred or their injustice. What we need in the church is people that are willing to serve. And I believe that Jesus has called me to serve. And so that's why I wear a spoon. It reminds me I'm called to serve. And so that's the story that um, provokes a lot of questions, not only about Jared and, and the, the spoon, but um, hopefully we always get to the point where people are, how can I better serve? Yeah. And just to ask you a, a follow-up question about that story in particular, um, what do you think is the, um, the question that seems to come up most often when you tell that story to people? What seems to be the, the point that they struggle with the most that why they may not be able to see themselves as a spoon? Well, it's interesting. Most people, even if they are, would be considered by others knives and forks, don't see themselves as a knife or a fork mm. and, and will sometimes see that their, their meanness or their hatred is really serving to other people. And so um, when I say that sometimes people who are knives and forks 
um, don't know their knives and forks and they think that they're really helping other people even though they're they're making them bleed um, their their big question then is how do I not do that and how can I better serve people sure yeah fantastic all right and third story just keep rolling right into it is story that best points to Jesus I actually heard this story early on in my ministry and it it was written by a man named Richard Pindell, and I believe he wrote it back in the 1950s. But it, it had such a powerful effect on me. It, it has become one of the signature stories that I tell um, and, and aiming at, at the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about a young man who gets into a, a, an argument with his father. And while they're arguing, the, the argument escalates to the point where the dad finally pulls out his trump card and says, well, listen, your feelings be what they may. As long as you live under my roof, you'll do as I say. Well, the kid pulled out his own trump card, and he said, fine, if that's how you feel about it, I won't live under your roof. And he went up, and he packed his bags. And Mom, of course, was sobbing, trying to get them both to reconsider. But um, anger and, and pride being what it is, they, they, they both let their anger get in the way, and the boy left. And he was gone for uh, a number of months. And... Um, after a number of months, he was running out of money, but he was also running out of anger. And the fact was, he missed his parents. He, he loved both his mom and dad very much. And, and he knew that, that things had gone haywire. And he started thinking maybe it was time to put uh, uh, the wagon back on the right track. And so he decided he was going to go home. And back in those days, train travel was much more prevalent than it is today, much more cheaper. And so he went to the nearest train station because... Um, in his hometown, there was a train depot. In fact, his parents' property was very close to the train tracks and to the train depot. So he thought he would just take the train home. But while he was sitting in the train depot waiting for the train to come in, he started worrying that, that, that maybe um, his parents didn't want him to come home. Maybe they had found it, that it was good he didn't live there. And so he, he didn't want to go where he wasn't wanted. So he, he went, and, and back in the day, they used to have pay phones. And, uh, where you could, uh, there were just phones on the side of a wall or in a little glass booth, and and uh, you could go in and pay for a phone call. Well, you could also dial up the operator and, and say, I want to make a collect call, and that meant that the person who, who you were calling would pay for the call, and you didn't have to drop in coins and whatnot. Anyway, um, he, he decided he would call his mom, and so he went to the pay phone and called collect, and of course she accepted the phone call, and he could tell by her voice that she was so glad to hear from him that he was all right and he said well mom I want to come home and she was overjoyed and she please come home I've missed you so much and and he was glad to hear that he said oh mom that sounds good but I, I gotta ask does dad want me to come home will dad be glad and expecting mom to say of course but she kind of went quiet and she said you know I, I I'd like to say that he wants you to come home but but I don't know he 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 hardly talks anymore he's a different man since the night you left he's a changed man he was always such a happy-go-lucky man, always a back-slap and give the shirt off his back kind of guy. But ever since you left, <laughs> he hardly talks to anybody. And in fact, you know, you you know how your father and I have always been so close. And he hardly even talks to me. He goes to work. He broods over dinner. He sits in his den, goes to bed, does it all over the next day. And on the weekends, he just sits out in his wood shop in the garage, and he doesn't make anything. He just sits there and 
and and thinks and he, he so he, I, I, but I think he wants you to come home please come home and the boy said well mom I, I, what if he doesn't want me? what if he likes us and she said well I think he wants you to come home well can you guarantee absolutely guarantee and she said well no because he won't talk to me but I think he want mom I gotta go the train's coming in tell dad this you know that old dead apple tree that's out on the back of your property that dad and I was gonna take down this summer tell dad that that I'm on the train it's gonna go right past your property there Tell dad that I'm on that train and I want to come home. But if he doesn't want me to come home, I understand. But if he does want me to come home, tell him to, to hang a white handkerchief from the bow of that, that old dead apple tree. Mom, I got to go. I, I, I got to get on the train. I love you. And he hung up and he, he ran and got on the train. Well, he sat in a, a, a train car. And back in those days, the train cars held a number of people. And people would read or they'd do crossword puzzles or... They would play cards with one another or they'd nap and this boy he just wanted to be left alone so he found a seat right by a window and he just sat down there and after uh he sat down he he felt the seat next to him being occupied and he he looked over and there was an older gentleman very kind face looking at him and the boy kind of looked at him and the man smiled and the boy gave a quick smile but turned away as if to say please don't bother me and the old man respected the boy for that and so the the young man, he just traveled mile after mile thinking about where he'd been, what he'd done, and the fight with his dad, and did his dad want him to come home? Well, it was after some time, he felt a nudge at his elbow, and he looked over, and the older man was looking at him, and the older man looked and said, boy, I, I don't mean to get in your business, but we've been riding together for a lot of miles now, and I keep hearing these deep sighs and these heavy groans come out of you, and I, I can tell you got a lot on your mind. He said, if you want to remain private about it, I will respect that. But sometimes it helps to talk about it. And I've been told I'm a good listener. So if you want to talk about it, I'd be glad to hear. And uh, the boy looked into the kind face of the older man. And he was a private boy, but he just wanted to, to let it out. So he started to tell the story how he and his dad had gotten in a fight and how he'd left and what he'd been doing, where he'd traveled to, and how... Uh, he wanted to come home, but he wanted to make sure his parents wanted him to come home. And as he was telling the story, he could tell other people in the train car, uh, those playing cards, those reading, those working crossword puzzles, those pretending to take naps, they were all listening to him. They were eavesdropping. He could tell, but he didn't care. He knew he'd never see these people again, probably. So he went on with the story, and, and he looked out the window, and he said, right up ahead is a big bend, and we're going to make that big bend, and we're going to go run right across the back end of my parents' property. And on that parents, my parents' property is that an old dead apple tree. And I told my dad that if he wanted me to come home, he was to hang a white handkerchief on the bow of one of those, one of the boughs of that old dead apple tree. And just as the boy finished telling that, a great wave of emotion kind of filled him, and uh, he felt sobs coming out of him. He put his face to his hands to his face, and then he kind of doubled over where his forehead was almost on his knees, and. He just started to cry. At that moment, he could feel the train begin the bend. And as the, the train was clearing the bend, the boy could feel it. He could also literally sense all the people leaning out his side of the window to look and see if there was a, a white handkerchief hanging from the, the bough of that old dead apple tree. And he could tell in his mind, because he, he knew his parents' property well, just about where that apple tree would be. And he was hoping as he was doubled over there and still crying, he was hoping that he'd hear, hey, there it is, or hooray, I knew it'd be there, or 
You gotta look. This is incredible. <clears throat> but he didn't hear any of that. As the train cleared the bend and started its, its straightaway into the depot, the boy heard a collective gasp from all the other passengers. And, and he knew it was bad news, and so another wave of emotion started to hit him. But it was then he felt the hand of the, the older man on his shoulder. And the older man kind of lifted him up, peeled him back from, from his knees and said, boy, it's time to face your future. You're a man. Be a man. Look up. And with that, the boy sat up straight and he took his hands from his face. And as he looked out the window, they were just rolling past that old dead apple tree. And he saw that there was not one white handkerchief hanging from above that dead apple tree. There were a hundred white handkerchiefs hanging from a hundred boughs of that apple tree. The message couldn't have been any clearer to that boy. The dad was saying, come home, come home. I don't want to live without you. I'm not the same without you. Please come home. I tell you that to tell you this. God didn't hang a white handkerchief on an apple tree. He hung his son, Jesus Christ, on a tree called cross. And it wasn't white flowing in the breeze. It was red blood, and it was by the red blood of Jesus that we are now able to come back to our Heavenly Father for our sins have been paid. There is no barrier between us and him. And God is saying to us, come on home. I don't want to live without you for all eternity. And we get to go back home and be with our Father. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, that was, that was incredible. Um, quick follow-up question. Um, why is that your favorite story to point to Jesus? It's my favorite story because I think there are times I have, and, I, and I'm guess mo guessing most people, have wandered away from our Heavenly Father. And we want to come back home. We know the joy of being in God's presence, but we, we sometimes feel maybe, maybe we've fallen too, short, too far short of His glory that, that there's no coming back. But the Father reminds us over and over that there's nothing we can do that his love and his grace and his forgiveness can't overcome. The psalmist says deep cries out to deep. No matter how deep our sin, God's grace and love and welcome and acceptance is deeper still. And so for me personally, it reminds me that I can come home. But also I, I want the people that, that I teach, that I talk to, that, that I communicate with, that are, I, I befriend and befriend me, I want them to know that they can be welcomed home too. Yeah, for sure. Wow, I'm currently trying to collect my thoughts here, so give me a second. Um, so Bill, you travel all around the country. Uh, for those that don't know, Bill is a speaker that travels around 20, 25 weekends a year to various Youth conferences, camps, will be at the LCMS Youth Gathering this next week here, uh, speaking and ultimately telling stories. Uh, definitely been given a gift to tell stories. And so the question that I'd like to ask about that is, what is it about the power of story that seems to bring us all together and can take us from a casual conversation to this immediate moment of being captivated and can communicate a message so clearly? 
Well, I truly believe, that's a great question, Stephen, and I, I thank you for asking that. But I truly believe we communicate in stories. Um, if, if, when I see you, and, and Stephen, I've, I've blessed to know you a couple of years now, but when I get to see you after I haven't seen you for a while, and I say, what are you doing? You don't say, well, Roman numeral one, I do this, A, B, I do. We don't talk in, in outlines. We don't talk in, in a linear fashion. We tell stories. And sometimes they're in, in chronological order, but sometimes they're not. And we had a chance to sit down and have lunch today and, and hear some stories of, of, of when Stephen was overseas and, and uh, you know, talked about um, um, some of his friends that, that he'll get to see again maybe and then pick up. And so we're storytelling people. Um, I, I truly, I wish I could remember who said it, but they said, um, some people say that we're made of bones and blood and flesh and sinew. I say wrong. We are made of stories, and stories are for telling. Yeah. Amen to that for sure. And so um, throughout all of your travels, you have met how many people? Tens of thousands? Can I say hundreds of thousands? Who knows? Yeah, right. Enough, enough that you can say, I don't know. Right. And so... When you have the opportunity to sit down, particularly with a kid that believes that they don't have a story to tell, what are usually some of the words that you find yourself being given to give to that kid that believes that they don't have a story to tell, that believes that maybe this world would be better without them? Yeah, um, I usually ask them to tell me... uh, what brings them most joy in life? And it's interesting, they, they don't just mention a thing, they usually will start to tell me a story of an event that happened or a time they've experienced. And then I remind them, that's a story that they can tell. And um, I also will remind people, somebody said one time, and I don't remember who said this either, but they said, God never wastes a pain. And so if you're going through a pain, God is going to use that somehow, uh, some way for good reason. And sometimes I think um, God allows us to go through pain so that later on, if someone else is going through that same pain, we can walk with them because we've been there. We, we understand it. And so um, what, I, what I try to do first and foremost is help them to see that, that they are valuable, they matter, um, they're loved, they're not alone but that they do have uh, something to offer the world and that the world would be poorer uh, if they weren't in it and the world would be poorer if they didn't share what God had given them to share, whatever that story is. And, and um, sometimes we try to be clever in our stories. Sometimes we, we, we try to make them funny or we try to make them super sad or we, we try to always have you know a profound point. The fact of the matter is, Sometimes a story is just that, a story, and it doesn't have to prove a point. It, 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 it can be an end into itself that we just enjoy what somebody has told us without a major point being attached to it. Yeah. And so getting back to um, the gospel in itself, the story of Jesus, plenty of people will claim that it is the greatest story ever told. Mm-hmm. And so what is, what is it exactly about the gospel story that particularly captivates you or a part of it that always seems to bring life in it even though you may have heard it a thousand times yeah 
I, I think that's a great question too. And, and truly it comes down to this, um, Jesus's ability to love even when we have been so unlovely and unlovable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and I'm, I love in 1 John 4, 8 where it says God is love. Not just that God does love or God shows love or he feels love, but he is love. And that means this, we can be assured that, that God will love us even when we're unlovely and lovable because he, he is love. He cannot deny what he is. He will still be loving us even when, when um, we're pushing him away. And that is proved most dramatically, of course, at the cross. Jesus could have come off that cross anytime he wanted, popped the nails out, walked away and said, I'm done with these people. And Father, we, let's start all over and see if we can make a better go of it next time. But he doesn't because he's helplessly, hopelessly, madly in love with us. He stays on the cross simply simply because he loves us so much. And, and we who put him there, um, uh, he's able to to remind us that that we're we're worth it we're certainly not worthy of it but we're worth it and that's the part of the story that moves me most for sure all right we're gonna we're gonna slowly wrap up here but i don't get to see bill a whole lot from here so i'm gonna squeeze every little bit of story out of him so impromptu for story and you can definitely take a little bit of time here to to think of something um, but if you could tell us a story that kind of captures that worthiness that you just talked about, that for someone that may be listening to this, that is currently asking that very question of why am I worth it? Um, a story that best provides an illustration for, yes, you are worth it for someone that struggles to digest, you know, church language or the the word um, yeah. as well as somebody that's grown up with it. Someone that um, can hear it for the first time and know that it is indeed truth without having, without being able to just put their finger on it right away. But they know um, deep within inside their soul that that is something that's the answer to the question that they've been asking for so long. Um, I have a friend named David and he's given me permission to tell his story. When uh, um, uh, when I was growing up um, David was brilliant he you know today we have all these high-tech things of, of um, iPhones and iPads and well when we were growing up we had these things called crystal radio sets and um, he you literally built your own radio set my friend David uh, was able to do that and David also was into camping and he had the coolest camping gear he could he could literally um, make like a whole living room uh, outside in a, in a tent and campground um, from very very and then pack it all up into a very small package he's just uh, amazing at those kinds of things and he was my became my best friend but the, the weird thing was David was not very good at sports and sports was my life I mean he couldn't throw a football to save his life. He couldn't make a basket to, to save his life. He couldn't hit a baseball to save his life. Well, when, when we were in grade school, um, even though David was my best friend at recess, and, and I grew up in a time when the boys played on one part of the, the, the playground and the girls played at the other. We didn't, we didn't cross over. Boys played with boys, girls played with girls. 
And the boys always started at the backstop at recess. Whatever game we were going to play, we started at the baseball backstop, and we, we'd pick teams. And uh, Tom Camrad and I, we were always the biggest kids. And um, so we always got to be the captains. And if somebody didn't want us to be captains, we'd push them down, and then we'd be the captain because we were the big kids. <laughs> and um, um, so we'd always pick up sides for whatever we'd played. Well, David was a terrible athlete. He knew it. We knew it. Everybody knew it. And so when we were picking up sides, even though he was my best friend, um, David was always picked last. I, and, and every once in a while, I, I felt like I was doing him a favor. I'd pick him second to last, you know, and hope that he felt good about that. Well, when we were in the fifth grade, um, the Rotary Club in our, my hometown of Grand Haven, Michigan, wanted to um, have a contest. And I'm not exactly sure why they did this, but um, there were, I think, seven grade schools in my hometown. And they established it this way, that all the fifth grades at the seven different schools, so that was probably 14 different fifth grades, um, were to be broken down into teams of two, and they had to do science projects. And then the, the best twosome from each school would then have a contest with all the other twosomes from the best twosomes of the other schools. And uh, then there would be a best twosome uh, in the whole town of fifth grade science people. Well, when I first heard about this contest, I was horrified because I was pretty good at sports, but I was no, no good at science. Mm -hmm. I was terrible in science. And I right away knew in a team of two, um, nobody would want to be my partner because um, um, I'm, I was terrible in science. And so if I got to pick, nobody would want me to pick them. And, and if, if I didn't get to pick, I knew nobody would pick me. And so I was, I was terrified, and Mrs. Hallman, our fifth grade teacher, um, she said, uh, told us all about the thing, and she said, we're gonna pick our teams now. And she said, I'm gonna let you pick um, which team you wanna be on, but let's do this, is we'll, we'll do it by science grade. Whoever has the best science grade um, can um, pick first, and, and then whoever has next best science grade all the way down. And I thought, oh my gosh, nobody's gonna pick me. I'm gonna be last, I'm gonna, I'm gonna and, and I'd never experienced the, the awful feeling of being picked last. Well, the boys all knew that Dave Homeyer was, was the smartest science kid in, in our class, but all the girls thought it was Lori Laughlin. And so Mrs. Hallman was up front and she was looking and she said, you know, I, I, I can't really tell who's, who's got a better grade. It's either Dave or Lori and why don't we flip a coin? And so they flipped a coin and Lori won, but it, it, nobody really cared because uh, the boys didn't play with boys, girls didn't play with girls, so everybody knew that, that if, if Lori got to pick first, she'd pick Ann Timmerman, because Ann Timmerman was the second smartest girl, and, and if Dave, Pimmer, Dave, Dave Holmeyer, my best friend, got to pick, he would pick Tim Barnes, because Tim Barnes was the second best smartest kid in the class, and so it, it didn't really matter, but Lori won the, the pick, and um, I remember Ann Timmerman was sitting right next to me, the second smartest girl, and and um, um, Lori, of course, quickly said, Ann, I pick Ann. And, and Lori was jumping up and down in the front of the classroom. And I, I remember Ann stood up and she kind of threw back her hair and her shoulders were back. And, and she was walking up front all cocky. It just made me so irritated. Anyway, um, they, she got to the front and they joined hands and they're jumping up and down. They're going, we're going to win, we're going to win, we're going to win. And then Dave Holmeyer got to pick and, and Tim Barnes the second smartest kid he was halfway out of his seat because everybody knew he'd pick Tim Barnes when Mrs. Hallman said okay Dave you get to pick next and Dave looked out and, and Dave said Bill I picked Bill I picked Bill Bill you're my partner 
and no lie, I'm the only Bill in the class. And Mrs. Hallman couldn't believe it. She even went, Bill who? And he said, <laughs> Bill Yonker, Bill Yonker, pick Bill Yonker. And I remember a whole bunch of emotions going on inside this fifth grade brain. Um, one being confusion, why would he pick me? Two being elation that, that I wasn't picked last. Third, the fear that I'm going to have to produce some science project because I don't have a clue about science, even though Dave could put crystal radio sets together and be very scientific. And I remember getting up there and he grabbed my arms and he started jumping up and down going, we're going to win, we're going to win, we're going to win. And I'm thinking, there ain't no way in God's green earth we're going to win. <laughs> <laughs> but then I don't remember how everybody else got picked, but everybody got picked. And, and then it was time for us to go out for recess. And I remember we... Uh, as, as we went into the cloakroom, that's what they called it back. Not the coat room, but a cloak. I'm not even sure what a cloak is, but we had a whole room for him. And we were in the cloakroom putting on our coats, and Dave's all happy. And I looked at Dave, and I said, Dave, I said, i got to ask you something. And he said, what? I said, why would you pick me? And he looked at me like I was the dumbest kid in class. And, well, maybe that might have been close. But he looked at me like I was the dumbest kid around, and he, he said, why wouldn't I pick you? He said, Bill, you're my best friend. Who else would I pick? And I thought about all the times I had left him at the backstop where I thought I was doing him a favor by picking him second to last, but most often I picked him last. But Dave showed me that we get picked sometimes, not because we're good enough or strong enough or pretty enough or talented enough. We get picked because we're loved enough. And it taught me that's what Jesus does. <clears throat> he doesn't pick us because we've been good little boys and good little girls. He picked us because we're loved enough. And he says to us that even when, when we mess it up, that he'll still choose us. In John 15, he says, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that would last. Dave Holmeyer showed me that sometimes you get picked because you're loved enough. And Jesus would have us know that every single one of us gets picked handpicked by him because we're loved enough incredible oh goodness folks i hope you are sitting here just absolutely soaking all this in um and it, the incredible imagery that bill has provided through these stories um thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the awaken project podcast if you haven't already check us out on facebook on instagram go give us a follow there uh obviously Stay in tune here wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Desktop, Anchor, Spotify, whatever you choose. Uh, go give us a follow there so that way you are up to date on all things Awaken Project Podcast. And we will see you next time. Thank you all. Mm -hmm.